Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome back to Behind the Knife and our cardiac surgery crash course. The cardiac OR can be a daunting place for any medical student or resident who finds themselves on a cardiac surgery rotation. But have no fear, this cardiac surgery crash course is a short series focused on high-yield topics to help introduce students and residents to cardiac surgery prior to or during a cardiac surgery rotation. My name is Jessica Millar. And I'm Nick Tiemann, a cardiac surgeon at the University of Virginia. We hope you find our series useful, and if you have any suggestions or requests, please feel free to reach out to us by email, which you can find in the show notes for this episode. So our topic for today will be focused on one of the most important aspects of cardiac surgery, which is cardiopulmonary bypass. A vast majority of the operations that we perform as cardiac surgeons would not be possible without bypass. So let's start by talking about what bypass even is. Jessica, how would you define cardiopulmonary bypass for someone who's not familiar with it? Yeah, so cardiopulmonary bypass is a way in which we can divert blood away from the heart and lungs. So in other words, our surgical field during cardiac surgery and allows for a bloodless operating field. Additionally, the bypass machine will take over the normal physiologic functions of the heart and lungs during the operation. That's right. During surgery, the bypass machine will take over the functions of circulation, oxygenation, and ventilation. This will ensure that all the other organs of the body maintain adequate oxygenation and perfusion throughout the operation. And quick side note, for those who have never seen a bypass machine before, I highly encourage you to pause this episode and very quickly do a Google search image of one. You'll likely see it in every cardiac OR you enter, and it's super helpful to become familiar with all of the different aspects of it. Additionally, it'll serve as a great reference guide as we get into all of the mechanics of how it works during this episode. So when you first enter the operating room, you may see this machine with lots of tubing, pumps, oxygenators, heaters all around it. You may also see monitors that track circuit pressures, temperature, and different blood parameters such as oxygen saturation, hemoglobin, and potassium, and other electrolytes. All of this will be controlled throughout the operation by a perfusionist. And the perfusionists are super important team members during any cardiac surgery. They are also a wealth of knowledge and have taught me so much about bypass. Absolutely. Every perfusionist I know loves to take time to teach students and residents about the machine. Now, before we move into the steps of placing a patient on bypass, let's first review all of the different cannulas and how blood flows through the machine during surgery. Jessica, why don't you start us off? Absolutely. And this is where having a picture pulled up will be super helpful. So starting with our venous cannulas, venous blood is drained from the right side of the heart through either two cable cannulas, usually one in the SVC and one in the IVC, or through a single cannula. You'll sometimes hear these referred to as bicable cannulation if there's two cannulas or caboatrial cannulation if there's just one. Once the venous blood is drained from the right side of the heart, it passes through the venous cannula, which conveniently are often marked with blue tape, um, and it will go to the bypass machine where it'll empty into our venous reservoir. You got it. So depending on the procedure, you may also see venous cannulation occur via the femoral vein, especially in minimally invasive procedures. This cannula is introduced into the femoral vein and passed up into the right atrium. Okay, so now we have venous blood in the bypass machine. What's next? Next, the arterial pump will draw blood from the venous reservoir and pump it through your oxygenator and your heater. 
you can kind of imagine your arterial pump being kind of your artificial heart part of the bypass machine and the oxygenator heater being the artificial lung part. So we've talked about our arterial pump and we've talked about our oxygenator and our heater being important parts of the bypass machine, but what actually helps determine our oxygenation and our ventilation? Right. So the oxygen delivery to the patient is determined by the blood flow rate, as well as the FiO2 of the, uh, of the gas that's being delivered to the oxygenator. So the perfusionists are constantly monitoring how much blood flow they're delivering to the patient, and they're monitoring what, you know, essentially the cardiac index, and that's determining the oxygen content and the oxygen delivery of that blood. The ventilation is determined by the sweep gas that they apply to the oxygenator. Now, another important component uh, during this step is the arterial line filter. All of the circulating blood will pass through a filter to catch any air bubbles or other microforeign particles that may have been introduced into the perfusion circuit. Okay, Jess, keep us going. What comes next? All right. So after the blood is passed through your oxygenator and your heater, it gets returned to the patient through an arterial cannula, which will be conveniently marked with red tape. Exactly. Now, the arterial cannula is often placed into the ascending aorta, distal to where the surgery is taking place. However, the arterial cannula can also be placed into other major arteries, such as the femoral artery, the innominate artery, or the axillary artery, especially in the case of aortic surgery. Aortic cannulation is a critical part of the case, as complications from cannulation can occur. Jessica, what kind of complications do we worry about? We most often worry about aortic dissection and plaque dislodgement. Right, and these complications can have devastating consequences for the patient, so this is a critical portion of any case. All right, let's imagine our patient has been initiated on bypass, all of the venous blood is being drained to our bypass machine, and arterial blood is being circulated back into the aorta. So what comes next? So once your patient's been initiated on bypass, a cross clamp will be applied to the ascending aorta, proximal to where our aortic cannulation is, and that's just to avoid backflow of all the arterial blood that you're pumping into the aorta flowing back into your heart. Right. So essentially, the heart is excluded from the circulation now from the bypass machine. But if there's no blood backfilling the aorta, that means there's no blood flowing through the coronary arteries. So in other words, we're actively causing ischemia in the heart. So what can we do to protect the heart? This is where we can use cardioplegia. Absolutely. So cardioplegia is used as a method of myocardial protection, where the heart is perfused with a solution to cause electrical mechanical arrest and reduce myocardial oxygen consumption. There's a lot more to cardioplegia, but we'll talk more about this later on. One more important part of our bypass cannula configuration that students and residents may hear referenced a lot in the OR is something called a root vent. You're right. So a root vent is placed to prevent overfilling and overdistension of the left side of the heart and the aortic root. It's placed proximal to your aortic cross clamp to allow continuous drainage of the left heart during surgery. But why would the left heart fill with blood during surgery if the patient's on bypass? I've seen this come up on a few board practice questions, and that's because you have bronchial veins that empty directly into the left atrium, which means a small amount of blood is continuously returned to the left side of the heart, even when your patient is on bypass. This blood can bleed into the surgical field or fill up the heart and cause it to overdistend. That's right. And also, sometimes your drainage isn't perfect, and so you have blood going through the right side of the heart, through the lungs, and into the left side of the heart. All of this makes having a root vent necessary. And sometimes having a vent in the left ventricle is necessary as well. One last important part of the bypass machine that students especially may come into contact with during surgery are the pump suckers. These are suction devices that drain directly the bypass machine, and they help to minimize blood loss from the patient, allowing the surgeon or the assistant to suction blood from the surgical field and recycle it back into the bypass machine. Now, you want to be very careful about what you suction with these. 
As a general rule of thumb, you should not use them before systemic anticoagulation is given or after reversal is given. You should also only use them to suction blood. So definitely don't use them if there's any contaminants such as glues or waxes in the field. That's right. Betadine, for example, causes hemolysis in the bypass machine. So you definitely wanna, don't want to suck up any betadine in your pump suckers. All right. So we reviewed all the different parts of the bypass machine. And let's say we're now in the OR and the case is about to begin. Jessica, what is the first step when it comes to placing a patient on bypass? So before we place any cannulas, you first have to prime the system. You may notice that when the bypass lines are placed out onto the field, they're already filled with a ton of fluid. This helps fill the circuit and push air out, which is also known as de-airing your circuit. And as a pro tip, the part of the tubing that remains on the field is sterile and the tubing that's passed the perfusionist is not. Uh, there can be a lot of tubing going every direction. So especially if it's your first time in a cardiac OR, just be very careful not to contaminate yourself. That's a really important uh, concept. So remember that since the bypass machine has a venous reservoir, any air sucked back through the venous line is going to be scavenged away. So you don't have to do a wet to wet connection. It's okay to have some air in that side of the line. In fact, at UVA, our venous line uh, side of our bypass machine is not primed with fluid. It's just filled with air. On the arterial side, however, any air could potentially cause an air embolism, cause a stroke, cause other problems. So you really, when you're connecting that, you really want to make sure you, you're fully primed and you're fully de-aired. Now, sometimes this can all seem like organized chaos with a number of tubes that are ultimately placed within the field. So now that our circuit is primed, and let's say we've already made our median sternotomy and we have the heart and the surrounding vessels exposed, what do we do next? Now we can start placing our cannulas, but there's a very particular order in which you need to do this. So that's right. So the order in which we place the cannulas is very important and begins with our aortic cannulation. Arterial cannulas are placed first as this allows for the introduction of fluid and blood products into the aorta prior to placement of our venous cannulas and drainage of venous blood. This reverse order of steps really confused me at first, but what helps me remember it would be thinking about what would happen if you placed your venous cannulas first and drained all of your venous blood out, but had no way to give it back to the patient yet. That's right. Sometimes the patient becomes unstable when you're trying to cannulate the atrium, and it's important to have the ability to give some volume back to the patient through the arterial cannula if you need. And that would be a huge problem if you didn't have that ability. So Jess, what comes next? Next, we can place our venous cannulas. These cannulas are usually clamped once they're placed and gradually released in order to initiate full cardiopulmonary bypass. Once full bypass is initiated, then you can put your cross clamp on your aorta. And once your cross clamp is applied, then you can initiate cardioplegia. You really can't give cardioplegia before your cross clamp is applied because otherwise it would just go into your systemic circulation. Now, there is one more important step to going on bypass that we need to talk about, and that is anticoagulation. Absolutely. Blood loves to adhere to tubing, pumps, and all of the moving, circulating, pumping of blood makes bypass extremely thrombogenic. So patients must be systemically anticoagulated while on bypass to prevent adverse thrombotic events. That's right. Anticoagulation is one of the most important concepts of bypass. Systemic anticoagulation is achieved with administration of heparin, and it's monitored during surgery using an ACT or activated clotting time. This is an easy point-of-care measurement that can be performed in the OR, usually either by anesthesia or perfusion, to frequently monitor whether additional heparin administration is required during the procedure to maintain adequate anticoagulation. So Jess, when do we normally give anticoagulation? 
Heparin is typically given just prior to your arterial cannulation, and you should target for an ACT that's greater than 500, although that goal might vary a little bit by institution. And just as a reference, a normal ACT is anywhere between 80 to 120. So now eventually, all of that anticoagulation will have to be reversed, and we use protamine as a reversal agent of choice. Now, protamine can cause hypotension, anaphylaxis, or pulmonary hypertensive crisis. So during that time, while it's being administered, patient needs to be closely monitored by anesthesia. Now, the ACT should be checked after protamine administration to ensure that the coagulation has returned to normal. And if the ACT is still too high, additional doses of protamine can be given. Now, when I was a student watching cardiac surgery for the first time, I think the thing that amazed me the most was the ability to stop the heart, operate, and then restart it as if nothing ever happened. Uh, that's right. A, a cardioplegia is an amazing thing, and it really makes our jobs as cardiac surgeons a lot easier. After all, operating on a moving object is difficult. We mentioned that once a patient is initiated on cardiopulmonary bypass and the aortic cross clamp is applied, the heart will empty uh, with blood and there will be no backfilling of the coronary arteries, and that will cause cardiac ischemia. So Jessica, what do we do to protect the heart? Yeah, we give cardioplegia. Cardioplegia is a way to protect the heart during surgery by perfusing it with a solution that causes electromechanical arrest and reduces the myocardial oxygen consumption. This solution is usually introduced into the coronary arteries via a cannula inserted proximally into the aorta, just proximal to your aortic cross clamp, and that allows the coronary arteries to fill. This is also sometimes called your antegrade cardioplegia line. And you may also see a cannula inserted through the right atrium into the coronary sinus in order to introduce cardioplegia retrograde through the cardiac veins. And so, as you would expect, this is called retrograde cardioplegia. Uh, and a good indication for retrograde cardioplegia would be aortic regurgitation, where you worry about whether your antegrade cardioplegia is going to be able to get to the coronary arteries rather than through the incompetent aortic valve. Now, I do want to mention that you really should think about the bypass and the cardioplegia process as separate processes. You're going to see a lot of different tubes and, and cannulas being put into the heart and remember that some of those are just for bypass and some of those are for cardioplegia. And just because you're on bypass doesn't mean that you have to stop the heart and, and give cardioplegia. There's many operations that we do with the heart still beating. Absolutely. And that will vary a little bit by institution and surgeon, but you may see that on a rotation. So absolutely important to keep in mind. Your cardioplegia solution can be a crystalloid based, which is probably the one you're going to see most commonly, or blood based. And we can give it either continuously or intermittently, which again, intermittently is probably the one you'll see most often. Most solutions are potassium-based, which if you remember from medical school, increases the myocardial resting membrane potential. That's right. So and remember that each institution is going to have their own practice pattern for the type of cardioplegia that they give, the frequency of dosing, whether they administer it antegrade or retrograde. So really that's going to be something that you'll pick up in your first few operations that you see as a resident or a student. Now, a few other things that you may notice while a patient is on bypass is the use of hypothermia. Hypothermia is frequently used while on bypass due to its organ protective effects. So Jess, how can we monitor the patient to ensure adequate end organ perfusion while on bypass? This is where our wonderful anesthesiologists help us out during the operation because they use all sorts of metrics such as cerebral oximetry to measure distal perfusion. They use urine output and they can use a mixed venous oxygen saturation. That's right. And another thing that you may notice about the bypass machine is its ability to perform ultrafiltration. So some machines have an incorporated hemofilter 
that allows for the removal of inflammatory mediators and excess fluid. You can even remove potassium or other toxins. This is usually done after completion of the surgical repair, but prior to proteomine administration. And, you know, for in general, that's more commonly done in pediatric cases, but we still do it in adults from time to time. Now, surgery is all done and it's time to come off bypass. This is the process in which support from the bypass machine is slowly withdrawn and we allow the heart to once again take over circulation. So Jessica, why don't you walk us through these steps? All right. So if the patient was made to be hypothermic during the case, the process will start with rewarming. Now, rewarming has to be a slow process in order to avoid cerebral injury. Additionally, all acid base or electrolyte abnormalities or blood gas abnormalities need to be corrected. That's exactly right. Another important critical step to coming off bypass is to de-air the heart. You really want to ensure that all of the air has been evacuated due to the risk of a possible air embolism. And this is where your root vent comes in really handy to prevent any air from going to the systemically to the body. Instead, it just gets sucked out of the root vent. So you do this by decreasing the venous drainage from the bypass circuit and filling the heart. As the heart starts to eject, you'll see air coming into the left ventricle. Uh, and usually that's coming from either the pulmonary veins. Sometimes it's hiding in the ventricular septum. Sometimes it's hiding in the left atrial appendage. The anesthesiologists are using the TE probe to monitor the air. And you're basically allowing the air to uh, eject from the heart and come out through the root vent. Once you're satisfied that the uh, air has been removed, then you can proceed with your weaning from bypass. Other things that you can do that can also help evacuate air from the heart while you're coming off a of bypass are things like placing the patient head down, agitating the heart, and sometimes even using needle evacuation of air. All right, so now the patient is normothermic and we've successfully de-aired the heart. What's next? Next, the aortic cross clamp is removed and you may hear the surgeon ask the perfusionist to go down on flows or to temporarily decrease the pressure in the aorta when they're doing this. Once the cross clamp is removed, the heart is now being perfused by systemic blood, and usually it will start to rebeat spontaneously. Um, sometimes you do need to do some minor interventions, though, to get the heart restarted, such as direct electrical defibrillation. That's right. And it's important to note that when we use direct defibrillation, we're using the handheld paddles directly on the heart, and so therefore only a small amount of electricity is used, typically somewhere around 10 to 15 joules. And don't worry, you don't need to clear from the patient that electrical activity is only applied between the paddles. You may also see ventricular fibrillation and or ventricular tachycardia following reperfusion of the heart, which can be treated with defibrillation like we talked about, or antiarrhythmic medications. Lidocaine and amiodarone are often the drugs of choice for that. It's important to correct any arrhythmias you see promptly because they can increase metabolic demand of the heart. Additionally, temporary epicardial pacemaker leads are also commonly placed to help correct any arrhythmias postoperatively, such as heart block, bradycardia, or junctional dysrhythms that may persist, but often improve on their own postoperatively. Okay, so the cross clamp is off, the heart's perfusing, we're almost there. What are the final few steps? Once the cross clamp is off, the perfusionist will gradually begin to occlude the venous lines, which means that that will allow for greater filling of the right side of the heart from our systemic venous return. Concurrently, they'll also start to incrementally reduce the pump flows, which means less blood is going through the arterial cannulas, and that allows the heart to slowly take over circulating. Eventually, the venous cannulas will be clamped completely, and that's when the patient is officially off bypass. And one other thing we should mention is that during that time, we're also using uh, transesophageal echocardiography to assess the heart. If we've done a valve replacement or repair, we're making sure that there's no a leak or any other concern. We're looking at the biventricular function of the heart. And once we're satisfied and we're ready to come off bypass, there's one more important step. 
Do you know what that is? Protamine. That's right. After we're off bypass, we give a test dose of protamine to make sure the patient tolerates that okay. And then we slowly increase the protamine administration. Now it's important to make sure that all the venous blood has been uh, from the reservoir has been returned to the patient prior to the full administration of protamine. Otherwise, all the blood of the circuit and the reservoir will clot and that blood will not be usable. And as an important note for our students and residents who are so diligently manning the pump suckers during the case, pump suckers typically get removed from the field once about a third of the protamine has been administered. Now, many patients can suffer from hypotension when we come off bypass. So Jessica, what are some ways that we can treat that? So depending on the cause, such as hypovolemic, distributive, or cardiogenic, we can give controlled boluses of blood from the cardiopulmonary bypass machine, we can initiate vasopressors, and we can use inotropes. And in extreme circumstances, if a patient is unable to be weaned off bypass, or if they are so unstable that they must be placed back on a bypass, we can use a balloon pump, ventricular cyst device, or ECMO to give the heart some time to recover. But it's not uncommon that you have to go back on bypass. So that's why it's important when you remove the cannulas, you don't tie down the sutures immediately. We kind of just keep them uh, secured so that if we need to use those sites again for bypass, we can do that easily. Now, probably the most common cause of having to go back on bypass is ventricular dysfunction. And on the TEE, you would see ventricular distension, you'd see systemic hypotension, and you'd also notice when you're looking at the heart that the ventricles are distending and the heart doesn't seem like it's functioning very well. We'll say, though, for this episode, our patient successfully came off bypass. Well, that's it. We hope this episode was a helpful introduction to cardiopulmonary bypass, and hopefully all the random tubes strung across the surgical field make a little bit more sense. Be sure to look out for future episodes in our Cardiac Surgery Crash Course series. And until next time, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.